0: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights program serving up the most tantalizing stories from across our coverage. I'm Lane Green, the Johnson columnist for The Economist, and on your menu this week, our Washington correspondents go head-to-head to find out who knows more about the first year of the Trump presidency, how crap souls might just save your life, and the consolations of philosophy for the middle-aged. But first, endangered America's future as a global power is our cover line this week. Last Wednesday marked a year since Donald Trump was elected president. Alarmed by his campaign speeches about scrapping trade deals and alliances and making liberal use of high explosives, many people predicted his foreign policy would be disastrous. But though he has avoided some terrible mistakes, our cover leader
1: argued that he is turning America inward, hurting itself and the world. NATO was obsolete, he said. NAFTA was the worst trade deal maybe ever, and America was far too nice to foreigners. In the old days, when you won a war, you won a war. You kept the country, he opined, adding later that he would bomb the shit out of Islamic State, or IS, and take the oil. It hasn't been quite as bad as that. Granted, he has pulled America out of the Paris Accord, making it harder to curb climate change, and abandoned the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a big trade deal. However, he has not retreated pell-mell into isolationism. He has not quit NATO. He has not started any wars. He has stepped up America's defense of Afghanistan's beleaguered government and helped Iraq recapture cities from IS. But the fact that he hasn't yet provoked war shouldn't be enough to congratulate him. He has made some serious errors too, such as undermining the deal with Iran that curbs its ability to make nuclear bombs. And his instincts are atrocious. He imagines he has nothing to learn from history. He warms to strong men such as Mr. Putin and Xi Jinping. His love of generals is matched by a disdain for diplomats. His tweeting is no joke. He undermines and contradicts his officials without warning makes reckless threats against Kim Jong-un, whose paranoia needs no stoking.
0: The great businessman's errors of judgment extend to trade as well.
1: He remains wedded to a zero-sum view of the world, in which exporters win and importers lose. Are the buyers of Ivanka Trump-branded clothes and handbags which are made in Asia losers? The Trump team probably will not make a big push to disrupt global trade until tax reform has passed through Congress. But when and if that happens, all bets are off. NAFTA is still in grave peril.
0: And his admiration of thuggish dictators is unsettling America's liberal allies in
1: all corners of the world. Previous American presidents supported despots for reasons of Cold War realpolitik. He's a bastard, but he's our bastard, as Harry Truman is reputed to have said of an anti-communist tyrant in Nicaragua. Mr. Trump's attitude seems more like, he's a bastard. Great. To find out more
0: about how Mr. Trump is weakening America's position in the global balance of power, pick up a copy of the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. Now, if you're a regular listener, you may have noticed that our current affairs podcast, The Week Ahead, became a riotous battle royale last week. We pitted our Washington correspondents, David Rennie and John Fassman, against each other to see who'd really been paying the closest attention over the course of the last year, Anne McElvoy, the head of Economist Radio, was our quizmaster. Who would be the victor?
2: David, a Steve Bannon fidget spinner, which we could have done within the studio, frankly, is available for purchase through the Breitbart online store. But is it?
1: Uh, yes, true.
2: Yes, and it's sold out. The Economist office probably ordered the last few of those. Has anyone seen Steve Bannon around?
1: I spoke to him yesterday on the phone a couple of times. And? Uh, we had an interesting conversation about Trump and his generals, which is the cover story in this week's Economist. Have you noticed that he what wears a, a lot of bit shirts? Product placement. What I really wanted to ask him about was how many shirts he wears, because yes, when right. John and I Usually went to see him at Bre- John right. and I went to see him at Breitbart Embassy uh, a while ago, and he wears more than one shirt, but they're quite formal shirts. But right. he wears them in kind of multiple layers. And in fact, I think if you look at the the sixty minutes interview. He wears, I mean, like three shirts or something. It's really, it's, it's quite a layered odd.
0: dress shirt. It's not, not t-shirt, yeah. dress shirt, it's sweater, like, Exactly. But it's three dress shirts. It's
1: like wearing three sort of pairs of shoes at the right. same time or something. Right. It's a very, it's a very odd look.
0: And you can find out who won, big league, and test your knowledge against the experts by subscribing to the week ahead through your podcast app of choice. Over this last year, the world has seemed to get only more divided. But last week also marked an occasion that the art world has been waiting for for years. The opening of the Louvre Abu Dhabi, the first universal museum of the 21st century, with a mission to prove just how interconnected the world is and has been since the dawn of civilization. Our culture editor was there for the grand unveiling and described it in this week's Middle East and Africa section.
2: Designed by Jean Nouvel, the building is a triumph. A 30-year contract, signed in 2007, will pay 974 million euros, that's $1.1 billion, to the Louvre and its partner museums in France, which have lent the LAD 300 objects. The museums will mount four exhibitions annually in Abu Dhabi for the next 15 years. Prince Mohammed calls the project, which could cost more than 2 billion euros, the crown jewel in his country's relationship with France.
0: Its first show is nothing if not ambitious, a history of humanity.
2: The shift from hunter-gathering to sedentary life which produced the first villages is symbolised here by a monumental 8,500-year-old plasterwork statue with two heads. That led to the first great powers in the fertile valleys of the Tigris, Euphrates, Nile, Indus, and Yellow Rivers around 3000 BC, which in turn led to the first empires, the universal religions, and the continental trade routes.
0: With this museum, a nation of commerce and chrome is returning to a very old idea.
2: The LAD is the first universal museum to be built in the 21st century and the first in the Arab world. Manuel Rabaté The French director describes it as an adaptation or renewal of the Enlightenment idea that led to the original universal institutions.
0: The concept hasn't quite settled into its new surroundings.
2: Some may feel it is a bit rich for a country that has limited free speech and a history of using imported indentured labour on its construction sites to ask people to see humanity in a new light or recognize ourselves in each other, as they are exhorted to by posters advertising the LAD on the highway through the city. But its fans are passionate.
0: And it does seem like they're onto something. Despite the best efforts of populists around the world, thanks to technology, globalization is gaining ground. And an article in this week's special report explored how the sharing economy is allowing parts of Africa to leapfrog entire stages
1: of economic development. Take Mover, an Uber for cows, that was founded by a group of students at King's College London. They hope to connect truck drivers with farmers in remote areas who want to get their cattle to market. For now, many of those farmers will each walk a single cow to town, sometimes taking a week or more, and then have to accept whatever price they are offered.
0: Other initiatives have the potential to make existing but dysfunctional services dramatically more effective
1: consider Flare, which builds itself as an Uber for ambulances. Nairobi does not have a centralized ambulance dispatch system. Getting one can take hours and require calls to as many as 50 hospitals and ambulance companies. Flare hopes that, through a smartphone app, it can dispatch ambulance drivers to patients in much the same way that cab-hailing companies link taxis and riders.
0: In rich countries, such schemes have to defeat established systems but in developing economies, the opportunities for high-speed radical transformation are immense.
1: Just as Africans skipped past fixed phone lines straight to mobile phones, they can skip past owning a vehicle straight to the shared economy. Well, you know what they
0: say, sharing is caring. And as science correspondents Jason Palmer and Natasha Loder discussed in this week's edition of our Babbage podcast, even in extreme cases. Scientists have found that if you're feeling poorly, a carefully managed dose of somebody's fecal matter might be just the ticket. And so this is as I've heard it described a matter of actually transplanting material from the lower end of the gut
1: to the lower end of a gut.
2: Yeah, the to way put
1: it, to put it gently.
2: The way it's mostly done is by creating a liquid suspension of poo, and um, it can then be introduced from either end of the body. You can introduce it from the rectum or orally, but they... Put it in a. They put it straight into your stomach. You don't have to swallow it. Um, So that's how it's been done. There are some people who are trying to freeze dry the poo, if you like, and encapsulate it, something that's become colloquially known as the crapsule, um, which is a a sort of rather amusing uh, uh, reference to the contents of the uh, pill.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad they got that out of their system. Now, sadly, as you approach the prime of life, I reject the term middle age. Some maladies prove harder to shake. Take the midlife crisis. A crapsule just won't cut it. But a review in our Books and Arts section this week proposed an unusual alternative therapy. Forget the sports car or the steamy affair, argues Kieran Satilla
1: in Midlife. Have you considered philosophy? John Stuart Mill had his midlife crisis at 20. Hothoused by his father and preternaturally accomplished, he saw that even if all his objects in life were realised, still he would not be content, and had a nervous breakdown. Two insights saved him. One was that happiness was to be found beyond himself. Aiming thus at something else, Mill saw, people find happiness by the way. The other was that life should involve more than the amelioration of suffering, noble as that goal was. The author writes from bittersweet experience. I look back with envy at my younger self, Mr Satir writes. He could be anything, but I am condemned. Course set, path fixed, doors closed. As well as experiencing grief for the things you could have done but never did and never will, midlife means living with irreparable mistakes and the bathos of achievement. But with the help of philosophers, poets and novelists he has solutions. Fear of having missed out is, in effect, a wish for a profound impoverishment in the world, or, as Plato put it, for the life of a mollusk. Embrace your losses, he recommends, as fair payment for the surplus of being alive. Lamenting missteps is natural, but remember everything in your subsequent life that flowed from them. A different life might have turned out worse. In any case, no hypothetical alternative can outdo the one you have, with all its nuances and richness, like the fastidious excess of a peasant scene by Bruegel. In any case, you may as well enjoy the ride, because there's no point worrying about the destination. He considers Epicurus's consolation it is irrational to worry about death while you are alive, and after you die, you won't be able to, and Lucretius's death is no scarier than the time before your birth. Find meaning in the process, whether of work or hobbies. Learn to live in the halo of the present. So, although it's the
0: end of this week's episode of Tasting Menu, take heart in the prospect that you can read more of all the articles mentioned in this week's issue and find all of our other podcasts online. Keep sending in your feedback by email to radio at In London, this is The Economist.